Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said in current times, as once again we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on the air today by Dale Parmenter. Dale is the CEO of DRP Group, a global creative communications group, which is recognised as one of the leading presentation and communication companies in the whole of the UK. Dale, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us. Hi Scott, pleased to be here. It's an absolute pleasure having you and thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on to the programme this morning. Now, um, Dale, as I say there, the purpose of this podcast is to gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. So first and foremost, what I'd like to understand is what that word leader actually means to you. I think for me, it is clearly the figurehead of an organisation, but it's the person who's going to inspire and motivate and and take the team with them uh, uh, to complete the vision, whatever the vision is for for that organisation. So bring that vision alive uh, and then put goals and steps in place to to get close to that vision. Uh, So for me, a leader is that person out there that people look to, they trust, that trust is an enormous word uh, and attribute. Um, So the leader has to be there, has to be visible uh, and to take the team with them. Mm, absolutely. And um, if we think about your own personal leadership style, Dale, how would you describe that? Uh, I think quite um, quite hands-on uh, and maybe sometimes a bit too hands-on. Uh, I like to be very visible. Uh, I, I, I love to go and talk with the, the team, whether it's the apprentices or, or wherever they are in the organisation, see how they're doing, uh, what you know, talk about their you know if they wanted to talk about their their own private lives and what they're up to. But I think for me, it's about visibility and it's about communication. And I have a a real be in my bonnet about communication and leadership because I feel that if a leader fails to communicate or doesn't see the importance of communicating with their t- particularly their team, then they don't deserve to be a leader. Communication is the number one key attribute for me is communicate, 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 and particularly in times like we are at the moment. For certain, yes. Um, Leadership has really been put to the test in that respect, um, isn't it? Keeping communication alive with employees, with other people, especially when we're working from a distance, because that physical contact, which we've maybe taken a little bit for granted uh, prior to this pandemic, is no longer there. Mm. And leaders are having to maintain that sort of close-knit team feel from a distance. And that throws up its own challenges as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we, we, as soon as lockdown started, we, we knew we had to change the way we communicated with, with our team, from not just myself, but all the leaders in the organization. So I mean, we're, we're fortunate we got quite a, a strong infrastructure, uh, digital infrastructure, uh, using, using Teams uh, and Office 365. So we had that infrastructure to be able to communicate with our 350 people who are now all at home, uh, or pretty much all of them are at home. So uh, we instigated um, a virtual um, process uh, where we, we communicate with the teams, uh, the whole team, uh, twice a week. Uh, so on a Tuesday, it's a serious team update. We you know, tell it like it is. This is where we are. This is how we're doing. These are any threats. These are any opportunities. And the theme has constantly been about protection, protection of the team and their resources, and looking for those opportunities that are coming out of, of the crisis. Uh, the second uh, broadcast, which goes out on a Friday, 
is much more of a fun broadcast. Um, so we have virtual drinks on a Friday, the whole team getting together. We have quizzes, game shows. Um, uh, last week was a bank holiday special that we did from uh, outdoors uh, and uh, some stupid games. We had people joining us as well from the team. So that's just as important as the serious stuff as well. So it is communication, 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 and using the new technologies around. And then the smaller teams, you know, right down to the teams of five or six, they're encouraged to to really communicate on a daily basis with each other using the technology. And actually, we've seen brilliant examples of collaboration that we actually didn't see when they were face-to-face. So, um, you know, we've got to look at the positives out of every crisis. And for me, communication has been a massive positive that we've really ramped that up. And the team have felt really communicated with and really in touch and still part of that team, even though they're not in the same building anymore. It's an interesting point that you make there, that there are positives to come out of this, because um, it's often said, isn't it, that times of adversity like um, the COVID crisis that we're going through at the moment does bring out the best in people. And it seems as if um, your team has really uh, mucked in and got the job done without um, any complaints. Do you think, Dale, that going through times of crisis, experience of difficulties like this can really help develop people, not just employees, but also as leaders as well? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure I can say I'm fortunate enough, but what, I've been around a bit and I've been through several recessions and downturns. You know, the, the big one for us, which which compares a little bit to, to where we are now, was 9-11. Uh, I mean, that, that, that tragic day, uh, it just wiped out so much out of our industry, uh, particularly on the event side of the industry. Nobody wanted to travel, so a similar situation. So, I've seen several of these downturns before, um, these crises before. So you do learn as a leader, uh, and history tells us a lot, and we should learn from that history of what to do. Uh, and, and number one is people, look after your people, communicate with your people, uh, don't, don't flower anything up, uh, be honest and open with them, uh, whether it's good news or bad news, they need to know, and look after cash. And those are the two most important things. After that, everything else is fairly irrelevant and will fall into place. You have, you know, profits out the window, uh, shareholders out the window, boards out the window, all that stuff. It's about people and it's about cash. Uh, and as a leader, that's something I've learned over the years. And if you look after those two elements, everything else tends to fall in place. Mm. And we talked there about the importance of experience in your career, Dale, in navigating through those particular crises. Experience is, of course, a great teacher in and of itself. But are there any examples of people who you've worked with or perhaps even looked up to that have been an influence on you throughout your career, would you say? Yeah, and absolutely. And, and I, I, I read a lot of books about great leaders and, uh, and mentors. Um, someone I've worked with over the years that the, used to be the CEO of Sainsbury's, Justin King. I think it's a brilliant way that he could lead his people. He had you know, 150,000 uh, employees there, uh, and he, he was very visual, even though the, you know, the great demands of being a nationwide organization, remote organization as well, but you know, he, he, he led that organization to, to greatness. Uh, and Richard Branson, I think a lot of people would, would say there as well, and um, a lot of people have got um, you know, a lot of in common, and the commonality is that being great communicators, uh, and that's the key, being great communicators and having a lot of empathy with people and understanding 
what it's like from the other side. So seeing people from, from their point of view, uh, um, but also having that ability to make tough decisions, which we also have to make as well, which is, uh, you know, is the hard part of the, the job, but we have to do it. I think that's absolutely right, that final point there. Um, people tend to underestimate um, the difficulties of being a leader, I think. It comes with an awful amount of pressure and an awful amount of difficulty when you have to make key decisions. And that's also been heightened at times like this as well, where there are a lot of people who are quite worried about the uncertainty of COVID-19. They're looking at the leader for answers in that regard. And the lead, and because of all of the uncertainty, the leader themselves may not necessarily know too much more than the people who are asking the questions. And that also um, is a real challenge for leaders today, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, and and you know we're we're seeing the news the same time as everybody else. So trying to work our way through it, understand it, what does that mean for our organisation? Uh, but again, I I would always say to the team, if I don't know, if I don't understand something, I, I'm sort of as uncertain as they are. Then admit that. Don't try and blag your way through it, uh, because the, you know the, the team will will. We'll see that. So you have to be open and honest and say, look, I don't, I haven't got the answer or I made the wrong decision there or whatever it is, but we will put this right. We will find that information and we'll bring clarity to you as soon as we can. Uh, and I think what the team want is some certainty that someone is looking out for them. Some, you, and they, you are trying to get that information. You are trying to put a plan together. So even if there's nothing to communicate, still communicate that that's the absolute key transparency is key there um, as you say and I think if you do demonstrate as a leader as you mentioned there that you are looking out for the people around you it's far easier to take people with you in that sense and that's an important part of leadership as we've already discussed today also absolutely and I think an example was you know Sunday night with the announcement of the prime minister which you know I get where he's coming from you know some of the stuff brilliant that's good and then he said that one word that um, I certainly choked on my uh, on my tea that evening was uh, tomorrow. I think we're not ready for tomorrow. You know, where's that come from? Uh, and and as a leader, you have to respond really quickly. So I had a board meeting that evening, a quick call round to say how we're going to respond to this, and then straight out to the team Sunday night. We normally ban. Sort of communications on a on a weekend, but I felt this was important. But to to deal with that, because all of a sudden the team was starting to email their their leaders to say what's going on. We're uncertain. What are we supposed to come into work? What's going, happening? So we squashed that immediately, straight away Sunday night into everybody. No, stay at home. Uh, we're sticking to our plan, and uh, we will get, be in touch with you uh, Monday morning uh, with more information. So it's that responding very quickly. Uh, else, else things will just escalate uh, and I, I use the example of if you're in an airport or a train station and there's uh, a problem, a delay if there's no information what do ev- does everybody start to do? They think the worst they start to assume uh, but if there is information people calm down so as a leader you have to keep pushing that information out so people are oh, okay, I'm calm things are going to happen uh, you're in control I think that's vital. Keeping a cool head as a leader, as you say there, Dale, but also um, being reactive, as you say. I mean, business has had to be proactive during this period and plan for any eventuality, um, despite, of course, all of the uncertainty and changing circumstances. And those curveballs are where business leaders have to be able to react very quickly and make measured decisions with necessarily not 
a huge amount of notice. It's a huge test, isn't it? Oh, oh it is. I mean, sometimes it's making snap decisions that, you know, you, you, you can take advice from the, the rest of the board, but sometimes you, you haven't got time to do that. You just have to make that decision. But it's also getting the team in in periods of crisis in a way that they they can accept that for a period of time. So right at the beginning, once the lockdown started, I have um, a, a pretty awful visual that I've been using for several years through several recessions and downturns, which is a, a squiggly line. Uh, um, and I said, this is, this is our journey through this crisis. And it's basically just a squiggly line with an arrow pointing out to you know, the, the, the future. Uh, and what, what I'm trying to say there to the team is, one day we'll be going in this direction, and the next day we could go in another direction, and the day after it could be another direction, but you have to accept that that's the way we are making our way and we are navigating our way through this crisis. So things will quite possibly change direction to meet the challenges. And, and you can run for a period of time, not a long time, you can run for several months in that way that the team are accepting that change constantly is happening. And, and it's a powerful tool, even though it's a pretty awful graphic. Mm, it's attempting to navigate a storm in a way, isn't it? With constantly changing winds. And Yeah, I, mm. absolutely. I use the storm as an example as well. I think it's a, it's a great a great example. And sometimes you want to dive for cover into a cove, which is a bit sheltered. And other times say, Let, here's an opportunity. Let's go for it. Let's put ourselves right into the storm. Mm, absolutely. Business does have to be brave and it has to continue to operate and to innovate as well to seize upon the opportunities that will inevitably come out of this. And if we think about the future for a moment, Dale, if you were to advise anybody who were maybe about to start their first day in a leadership role at a business or make it in business themselves, what advice would you have to give them based upon that experience that you have now? Um, for me, uh, look for those mentors, look for those people who inspire you, other leaders who who've made it, been successful, read those books, watch those, uh, you know, the, the, those videos. And, and, and I've done that right from, I started out when I was well, 20 uh, in this role. So, and I've constantly, it's always learning, learn, learn, learn. And never forget this, every business is a people business. So how would you like to be treated uh, and and treat people the way you would like to be treated? So people is about business uh, and and business is also about cash. So look after people, look after cash. Those are the two main attributes. Uh, And, and, you know, and and keep that communication going. It's, It's really absolutely vital. Mm. surrounding yourself with the right type of people is integral isn't it um nelson mandela himself once said surround yourself with people who are better than you as it were and that's a fantastic example picking your mentors very very carefully oh absolutely uh you know you don't want to be afraid of somebody can do the job better than you uh that's what exactly what you want you want people who can do the job better than you else you're never going to get that continuous improvement and you're never going to improve yourself uh, and, and quite naturally, you will be elevated by the organization because people are coming in, they're, they're taking responsibility away from you. They're doing jobs that you used to do far better than you used to do it. And you need to foster that and make sure that happens. But also be there as that mentor and that person with a bit of experience to say, um, you know, beware of this or this happened to me. Not say don't do it, but these are some of the pitfalls that may happen. So you can help people take a bit of a shortcut. 
for sure, because leaders aren't lone wolves, are they? They have to remember that they are able to delegate. And sometimes, especially when it comes to startup businesses in particular, it can be difficult, that first step to letting things go and delegating to other people. But it's a step that does ultimately have to be taken. Uh, it does. Else, else the, you know, the organization's never going to grow. And as a leader, you're never going to grow. And it's really difficult. And it's really, really difficult. And I'm not saying that as leaders, we shouldn't get down and dirty and, and roll our sleeves up on the, on the shop floor occasionally. Uh, and you know, I, 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 I quite enjoy doing that. Sometimes I might find me sort of uh, out in the warehouse uh, interfering. I, I, a lot of people call it, and, and so do I. But sometimes you want to break. You just want to go and work with the guys and have a chat with them, have a coffee with them. Uh, and, and there's no harm in that. And I think it's great to be visible and, and to go and help out, and particularly in times of crisis as well. There's the leader making, look, I'm going to roll my sleeves up. I'm going to come down there and, and work with you. But you don't stay there very long. You, you need to be back with that helicopter view with the organization uh, and, and looking at all the parts of the organization. It's almost like that big war room that you saw in, in World War II movies of pushing those those flags and those aircraft and, and, and tanks around the table, that's what you need to be doing constantly. And if we think about the uh, the future now, Dale, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, um, do give me an idea of what the future holds in the next 12 months and beyond for yourself and for DRP Group, and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time, but also beyond COVID-19 when we begin to emerge from this pandemic. I, I think it's exciting times. It's a scary time. It's an exciting time. Uh, and I think the things that we put in place to to protect the resource uh, and also build the resource around us, because inevitably we will pop out the other side of this. The storm will, will uh, subside and, and off we'll go on the journey. So we have to be ready. And more organizations um, actually get into trouble on the out of a recession than going into a recession, because what they haven't done is they haven't protected their resource. They're not ready for the spike or the upturn, uh, and now they can't service the clients that, that they could before because they've maybe downgraded everything and let people go. So you have to be ready for that upturn. And actually, if you're ready and in the right, uh, and you've organized yourself well, you can really then win. You can really get ahead of your competitors because you have protected your resource and you're ready to go. And also during crisis, it's a brilliant time to look at innovation, look at the processes, what doesn't work anymore? What do we get rid of? What do we put in place? So um, that being ready for um, the uplift is really important. And then beyond that point, we have a strategy. We put the strategy on hold this year. We're all happy with that. You know, we're, if we can break even, we'll be happy with breaking even. Uh, so it's a year that we'll box in a drawer and say, okay, 2020, uh, let's forget. But now let's get back on that trajectory. Uh, and we're looking at some, some big growth, probably some acquisitions. Uh, and, and a lot of organic growth over the next uh, three to four years. And I think it would be absolutely fantastic, Dale, to perhaps even catch up in the next uh, year or so to see how the business is innovating within the market and to catch up on how uh, that upward trajectory is going as well. Um, we are just about out of time on the, today's programme, but I've got to say, Dale, um, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today. And thanks ever so much for taking the time to come onto the air with us. It's been a thoroughly insightful and enjoyable experience. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks ever so much, Dale. And do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well. And you.
Take care. That was Dale Parmenter, the CEO of DRP Group. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to become one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can. Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and, and the production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system, we're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think Out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, 
the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government. I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows, those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the 
essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or 
for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now 
about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while... Um, This might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government, and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well 
uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakira Starmer's major challenge 
is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.